Good morning, everybody. Welcome again. Glad you're with us. If you have a Bible, please open to Leviticus chapter 16. This is almost at the beginning of the Bible. Leviticus 16. If you're new to the Bible, big numbers, we call them chapters. The little numbers, we call them verses. Just keep it open in front of you. I'll read part of this chapter. We're only doing one chapter today. I'll start reading at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15, and read a little ways in. Um, I, gave you, I printed out more copies of this cheat sheet I made for you guys about Leviticus. If you have one of those, you can see I put an outline of the whole book on there. Um, this chapter is in many ways the main point of the whole thing. It's the center of the book, speaking in terms of, of themes. Um, you get to this chapter through a series of themes that now after this chapter, you walk backwards back through those same themes. Uh, and that's a way in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, of making a point that this is really important. The thing in the middle is the part you should really pay attention to. It's the point of the whole thing. So that's why I'm taking uh, one day to do a whole chapter and not doing a bunch of them like I'm normally doing. Leviticus 16, starting at verse 15. Then the high priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have given us not the spirit of the world, but you have given us your own Holy Spirit so that we might understand the things that you have given us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But the spiritual person judges all things. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, uh, that we would understand your mind by your spirit as we come to your word again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how you would answer this question. What's the greatest problem in the world right now? Is it the invasion of Ukraine? Is it the likely return of COVID in a couple months? Is it the upcoming election? Uh, maybe it's more personal. Maybe it's a car repair bill that you really can't pay. 
Maybe uh, it's a stumbling investment portfolio. Keeps you up at night. Maybe it's a breakdown in your relationships. Maybe your marriage or with your kids or with one of your friends. The Bible teaches that all of these very real problems, very painful problems, are actually downstream from a much bigger problem. Uh, Not just things out there, but ultimately something in here. The Bible says the biggest problem in the world is sin. Not just other people's sins, although that's really important, uh, but ultimately my own sin, our sin. All of us are broken and twisted and distorted versions of what God made us to be and what God made us to do. That's what the Bible calls sin. All of us have lived apart from and against the perfect and the beautiful God who made us. Every day, we find new ways of making excuses to do so. The Bible says that sin is not just the things we do. Sin is ultimately what we are. There's something deeply wrong with us. This ceremony in Leviticus chapter 16, it's called the Day of Atonement. It was meant to remind the people of Israel every single year about this biggest of all problems. But even more than that, it's meant to remind them about what God has graciously given to His people to rescue them out of this big problem. In many ways, this day was the most significant day of the year for the people of Israel, living under God's laws He had given it to Moses. It's hard to imagine uh, the American people building their entire calendar around a day that is so somber and so dark. We like happy things. Uh, We like uh, things that make us feel good. For them, the highlight of the year was a deeply pensive, somber day. It's a follow-up to the events of Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, You might remember this from a couple weeks ago. The high priest, Aaron, had these two sons who presumptuously barge into the middle of the tabernacle where God then immediately killed them. Uh, They thought they could come to God on their own terms. Uh, They thought that God was just supposed to accept them with their good intentions. But given the infinite contrast between God's purity and our impurity... This was not possible for them, and it's not possible for us. And so you hear here in Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 2, after we've gotten these five chapters since that story happened, we've gotten five chapters of rules about purity and impurity to help the people of Israel and to help us understand how pure God is and how much we need His mercy. We now hear again in verse 2, the Lord saying to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Uh, On my cheat sheet I gave you, I drew a little diagram of this tent. It'll help you to look at that. We're talking about this square part of it in the very middle of it. God forbade their entrance as an act of mercy. God says that Aaron must be taught to stay away so that he may not die. But that's not all that God has to say. God does not just say, stay away. God also says, come in. In Leviticus chapter 16, God is explaining how his people, and especially how their representative, the high priest, how they can approach him, how they should approach him, how they will approach him. You see, God wants to spare Aaron. He wants to spare the Israelites. He wants to spare us from death. 
And so they and we need to listen to him and come to him on his merciful terms. I'm going to walk through the main pieces of this ceremony, and I particularly want to show you what this ceremony teaches us about Jesus, about what Jesus has done through his death on the cross as God's final sacrifice, and then after his resurrection, his subsequent entrance into heaven as God's final priest. The New Testament book of Hebrews, we read part of this earlier, the book of Hebrews says that this ceremony was always pointing us forward to a much greater work of Jesus on a much greater day of atonement. And so the first thing we need to see about this ceremony, in in a way of helping us understand who Jesus is, is that the high priest needed atonement, but Jesus didn't. The high priest needed atonement, but Jesus didn't. If you look there at Leviticus 16, verse 4, you can see that actually for this one day out of the year, the high priest had his own special uniform. Normally, he had another special uniform. Normally, he wore clothing that was highly ornate, very fancy, even spectacular. But on this one day of the year, he was only to wear simple white linen. The point for this very somber ceremony was to underscore that the high priest was lowly, that he is something of a mere slave serving God as his master. It's an emphasis on the high priest's need for mercy. And so that's why the first thing that he does is to sacrifice a bull for his own purification offering. He needs to be cleansed. His own sin has contributed to the pollution of God's dwelling place. And so you can see that in verse 11. Skip down a little bit. The high priest kills a bull as a substitute standing in for the death that he deserves. And then the priest collects the blood of the bull into a bowl so that he can take it all the way into the very center of the tabernacle as a cleansing agent to purge it from his own sin. But before he can go all the way into that very middle room, uh, it's called the holy place or the holy of holies, before he can go into that room with this bowl of blood, he must first kindle a cloud of incense right in front of the thick veil that separated that little room from the other bigger room that the priests went into every day. And so God says back in verse 2 that kindling this cloud of incense, the point of it was to keep Aaron from seeing God's glory directly. Nobody can see God directly. Nobody can see God uh, in himself without being immediately destroyed. Not even the holiest man on earth. And so he must kindle this great cloud of incense so that he won't directly see God. So he does that, and then he goes back out, and he gets this bowl of blood that he'd collected earlier, and then he brings it all the way back in, and he sprinkles it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Ark just means chest. It's a big box. He sprinkles this blood on top of it, on this piece of it, the lid, that is normally translated as the mercy seat. And then he sprinkles it seven times, which in the Bible is a way of signifying completion. He sprinkles it seven times in front of the box in that little room. Uh, And then in that box is uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that God had written directly on Mount Sinai for Moses. And it was the place where God said he would appear most gloriously uh, in order to speak to his people. So the priest is to go all the way in to where that special box is where God would appear in a special way and he sprinkles the blood all over the mercy seat. He's covering over the judgment of God's law with sacrificial innocent blood. And so he's symbolically making it possible for God to accept the approach and the presence of this sinful, impure priest. The point is that Aaron 
even on his best day, even on the most important day of his year, even then he cannot approach God directly. He is a sinner, like every leader of God's people back then, like every leader of God's people today. He is in utter need of God's mercy. There is nobody who deserves to stand before God based on their own performance or their own piety or their own good intentions. And so that's part of why it makes Jesus such a great high priest. Because unlike Israel's high priest, Jesus was never sinful. He did not need to offer any sacrifices for himself before he could go to God on behalf of God's people. He could go directly to God, just in himself, on his own merits. His Father has always loved being in His presence. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son have been enjoying each other. And so the Father is happy to welcome Him into His presence. And now He's doing it in a human body. And so He comes as the representative of humans. And the Father loves to receive Him. So that's the first point. The priest needed atonement, but Jesus never did. But now you get to the heart of the passage. This is the part I read to you. uh, Where you see that the people need atonement. Uh, And we see here that Jesus has provided it. The people need atonement, and Jesus has provided it. That's in verses 15 to 22. Uh, So the the atonement on this one day happens through ceremonies that involve two goats. Uh, The first goat gets sacrificed as a purification offering, kind of like the priest had to sacrifice a bull for his own purification. Uh, And then the blood of that goat is taken all the way back into the middle of the tabernacle, And it's sprinkled again, just like the bull's blood. It's sprinkled on the lid of the box and then seven times in front of it, completion. And then once again, the point is that just like their representative, the priest, the people cannot approach God directly. They cannot approach him without atoning blood that that atones for them. Atone, remember, atonement means it rescues you and it purifies you. Those are the twin related ideas of atonement. Uh, But the people, this is what's really fascinating about this. The people are not the only things being purified. You read in verse 16 that these purification offerings are because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel with God living in the middle of them. The priest is sprinkling and smearing this goat's blood, not just in the very middle room. He also goes and he sprinkles it around the bigger room. Uh, And then he goes and he goes outside the tent and he sprinkles it around on the altar out there. Uh, And we're told that he's doing this, so all the furniture is getting blood on it. We're told that this happens because the tent of meeting dwells with them in the middle of their uncleanness. In verse 19, you hear that he's doing this, that all these pieces, all this furniture is being cleansed and consecrated from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. In many ways, the Day of Atonement was a day for a full reset Uh, We have already heard in Leviticus about the usual day-to-day regular sacrifices that God told his people to come and offer to him. Uh, You can find atonement for all kinds of sins in those ways, including unintentional sins. Uh, And we heard about all these rules about ritual purity, uh, many of which would include sacrifices that would move you out of impurity and into purity so that you could go back into God's presence uh, without being uh, judged by God or contributing to the impurity of everything. But of course, it was always possible that some people among the Israelites never got around to offering the sacrifices or that many of them never even realized that they had to. Uh, They very easily could have been ritually impure and never really known it and then been going anyways to worship God. And so it seems a little strange to us today. But because of this, uh, there is a kind of pollution, according to Leviticus. There's a kind of pollution that accumulates on the tabernacle. Uh, The people's sin is causing all of it to become more and more radioactive, so to speak. 
so that without some kind of off-ramp, the only result is going to be God's judgment. Uh, God could judge them or God could just leave. Eventually, and later on in the Old Testament, in the prophet Ezekiel, God does say, I'm just leaving. You guys are so impure, I can't be here anymore. And there's, Ezekiel has this vision of God just leaving. It's, it's terrible. It's one of the worst chapters in the Bible. God cannot dwell in the midst of impurity because his life always overwhelms death. And so the Day of Atonement is not just about personal atonement for my own sins, although it is that, uh, but it's also about a, a wider kind of atonement for the whole people of Israel corporately, but also about the places and the objects where God is most intensely present. The Day of Atonement with this sacrificial blood is purging the people and the tabernacle from whatever pollution had accumulated on them and on it throughout the year. And so that's what the first goat is for. The first goat, his blood goes inside the Holy of Holies to purify the people, to purify the tabernacle before God's majesty. But then look at verse 20. You have a very special ceremony now. It's unlike anything else you read about in Leviticus. You have this second goat. Uh, you're told earlier in the chapter that this goat is for Azazel. Uh, that word, no one is really quite sure what it means. Uh, it might be a place. Uh, it might be a demon. Uh, no one's really quite sure. But the basic idea is that this goat is going to be sent off to a barren wasteland. It's going to be sent off to the realm of impurity, far, far, far away from the people, far, far, far away from the tabernacle where God dwells. So Aaron, now that he's done with the first goat, he moves on to the second goat. This goat is alive. Aaron puts both of his hands. Usually you put one hand on. Aaron puts two hands on. He puts two hands on the goat. He leans on top of it, and he starts praying. He is to confess all of the sins of the people of Israel over that goat's head. And so you hear in verse 21 that symbolically speaking, the priest is placing all of the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat. And then there's somebody whose job it is that day to lead the goat way, 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 way out into the wilderness so that he will never return. It says, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so you see, the priest is placing all of the sins of the people onto the goat, and with the goat, he's sending all their sins away. Uh, not just their accidental, unintentional sins, although that's part of it. Uh, not even just also the sins that are more than unintentional, but still seem to have a life of their own. We know those kinds of sins, don't we? But even defiant, spiteful sins, even the things you do when you know they're wrong, you do it out of spite for God because you want to, because it's fun. All of those sins, God says, Aaron is placing them on top of the goat. And the amazing thing is that it's unlike anything else that happens inside the tent. Remember, nobody can go into the tent. Nobody can see what's happening inside the tent. In the very center part of it, only one person gets to go in there all year long. No one gets to see the ark except that one man once a year. And so unlike all of that other stuff, this ceremony with the second goat is happening in front of everybody. It's in full view of all the people there that day. And so it's meant to really drive home for them the point that God accepts them into fellowship with him because he's fully dealing with the danger and the pollution of all of their sins. And so they can, in a sense, see their sins being taken away from them, off into the wilderness, never to return. 
uh, just to make sure the goat would never return. Later on in Jewish tradition, they would say, well, make sure you lead the goat to the edge of a cliff and shove it over. <laughs> never comes back is the point. And so with these two goats, the priest has provided atonement for all the sins of the people. And of course, in a much greater way, Jesus has done that for us today. Jesus is a priest who has gone all the way into the heart of heaven, right into God's very presence. And there, Hebrews says, Jesus has purified our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. We can now go into the presence of God's life, even with our consciences. And so when Jesus died on the cross, this is why it's so significant. Uh, When Jesus dies on the cross, the Gospels tell us that this huge, thick veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that huge veil, right at the moment Jesus dies, it tears down the middle, top to bottom. It's an amazing statement. It emphatically declares that with the death of Jesus, the way to God's presence is now totally open. We can go straight to God because of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is simultaneously the priest and he's the sacrifice. He's the goat who gets slain in our place, the first goat, but he's the goat who's also sent off into the deathly wilderness. He bears away all of our sins with him. Isaiah 53, one of the Old Testament prophets, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ, says that he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the same idea as what the priest is doing with this second goat, putting all of their sins before sending him off into the ravages of the wilderness. And so when you look at Jesus with faith, what you're seeing is every single one of your sins Every single one of your failures, all of your shame and all of your regret as you look back upon your life, all of your weakness, what you're seeing in Jesus is you're seeing all of it utterly taken away from you, never to return. That's something I really want you to take away from today. When you see Jesus, you are seeing all of your sins taken away. The high priest needed atonement for himself. Jesus didn't need atonement. He's always been the beloved son of the Father, always welcome in his presence. The people needed atonement, and Jesus has provided it as the priest and as the sacrifice. And now our third point, as the priest finishes up with the goats, the priest needs to be rewashed. He needs to be rededicated. But Jesus has always been clean. Jesus has always been dedicated. Uh, So this second goat, we call it the scapegoat sometimes. The scapegoat has been sent away into the wilderness. No one's ever going to see it again. And so now in verse 23, the priest changes back into his usual, more elaborate clothing, and he has to bathe his entire body now. Usually he just has to wash his hands and his feet. He has to, again, be symbolically cleansed of his sin. And so now he offers a last couple of animals as burnt offerings on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. Remember that this is the sacrifice where you burned up the whole entire animal and it demonstrates that we're totally dedicated to God. We totally belong to Him. Everything is for Him. And so once again, the point is to underscore that because God has graciously accepted these sacrifices to cleanse us and rescue us from sin, uh, we are now fully His. We are fully moved over into His realm, into His purposes. 
he welcomes us with open arms. That's the symbolism of the burnt offering. The book of Hebrews emphasizes uh, that Jesus, unlike Moses, that Jesus served God not as a servant, like Moses was and like Aaron was, but that Jesus served God as a son. He's the beloved son of the Father. And so because as Jesus' brothers and sisters today, we're adopted into God's family, that means that we are adopted as Jesus' siblings. Because of that, Hebrews tells us, the Father is now glad to embrace us, just like he gladly and has eternally welcomed and embraced his natural son, Jesus. You see, Jesus, like a good son, has always been dedicated to his Father's purposes, his Father's way. And so when we are in him, and the New Testament calls this being united to Jesus, when we are in Jesus, we now get to be called saints. All over the New Testament, saints, 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 saints is a name for Christians. It means you're a holy one. It means you're set aside. It means that you're sanctified. You have a special purpose now. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, us, we all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Because Jesus has always been dedicated to the work of the Father, because he didn't need to be rededicated, he never fell out of uh, the Father's favor, because of that and because you today, Christian, are united to him in faith, that means Jesus is not ashamed to have you as his brother or his sister. He says, I love having you in my family. I have set you aside. You're as set aside as I am. I'm not ashamed. And so now here's our last point. Verses 29 to 34. Last point is this. Everybody needs to repent. Even us. Everybody needs to repent. Uh, The last few verses of the chapter summarize and reflect upon the whole entire ceremony. God says, make sure you do this every single year. Uh, And you see in these last few verses that it's never meant to be a spectator sport. It's never something that the people just watched from the outside. It was never something just for the high priest to do kind of magically on their behalf. They also, we also have a role. Verse 29, God says to the people, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work. Because, verse 30, atonement is being made to cleanse you. Because it means you will be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And so therefore, just to make sure you don't miss the point, therefore, once again, God says, you must rest and you must afflict yourselves on that day. Uh, this word for afflict, it's, it's from the same word that often gets translated in the Old Testament as poor or humble or lowly. Uh, the idea here is that you are meant to take very serious stock of your sin. You are supposed to, on this one day of the year as an Israelite, very genuinely and very seriously grieve over your sin, even as you also rejoice over the fact that God has forgiven you, God has cleansed you, God has sent all of it away. This is what the Bible calls repentance. It means not just turning away from your sin, although it is that, but it's ultimately and it's also turning toward God, turning toward His mercy, toward His grace. There's no real repentance biblically without also embracing God's mercy. And repentance is not just something for the Israelites back then. It's not just some Old Testament idea. We have received today a much greater atonement. We've received a much greater priest. We've received a much greater forgiveness. And so more than ever, we today should be grieving and lamenting our sin. 
This is part of the reason why every week uh, we take time to confess our sins. But repentance is something that Christians should be doing all the time, not just in our relationships with each other, but especially in our relationship with God. Uh, Notice, I think this is really fascinating, notice that God ties resting with repenting. He says, don't do any work on this day. This is a day when you can't work. You need to really take time to repent. Rest and repentance are tied together. Our society is extraordinarily busy and rushed and distracted. As much as a lot of us complain about this, the truth is that a lot of the time we like it this way. It means we don't have to really deal with the darkness in our own hearts, in the ways that we treat other people, in the ways that we use people. Uh, Scrolling through news and social media sure does make it a lot easier to be outraged about other people's failures than it does about my own. Pascal famously said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. And so every week, even for Christians today, God says, take one day, today it's Sunday, God says, take one day to rest. Stop working. Take time to focus on me. And much of our rest, of course, should be a time for rejoicing. We have so much to rejoice over. We've moved uh, the day of rest from Saturday to Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And that is a radically uh, new thing in the world. And it's an amazing thing to rejoice over. Uh, The heart of our worship services should be joy and happiness. But even so, our time of rest, our day of rest, still needs room for lament. It still needs room for repentance, for seriously taking stock of our sin. Even as, and even because of, us fully embracing Jesus' love for us, God's forgiveness of us. We have to go down into the valley of repentance if we are going to ascend into the mountain of blessing that God wants for us, rather than its many cheap and easy substitutes. The reason that the gospel is good news is because of the bad news behind it. I wonder if, uh, if you're like me, if we find so little joy in God to a large extent because we find so little wrong with our hearts. And so when you see your sin, uh, for the Israelites, they really did this once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, for us today, we do this all the time, uh, thinking about Jesus and what he's done for us, what he's given us. When we see our sin and we see how graciously God has dealt with it in Christ, you see that actually makes you want to come to him. Uh, You see it in the Day of Atonement, but you especially see it in the death of Jesus, uh, that God is for us. That's Paul's point at the end of Romans 8, this amazing chapter about our hope uh, through suffering, what God is doing by his Spirit in our lives and in our world. And Paul ends Romans chapter 8 by focusing on the death of Jesus. He says, doesn't this show you that God is for you? Doesn't it show you that God has nothing better to give you than he's already given you? He's already given you his best. And so doesn't that radically change your perspective on your suffering? Paul says it means no one can be against you. It means there's no one to condemn you. There's no one to judge you anymore. You've already been justified. You've already been accepted into God's family. Paul goes on, he says, no one can bring a charge against you because Jesus, not you, not me, because Jesus is the one who died. And because Jesus is the one who died, All that's left for me is life and blessing and freedom. 
Paul says, because Jesus is the one who was raised. Because Jesus is the one who has now gone to the Father to pray for us and to help us at the Father's side. And so out of that, Paul asks this wonderful rhetorical question. He says, in light of all that, who shall separate you from the love of God? The answer, of course, is nobody. Let's pray. Father, thank you that because of the death of Christ on our behalf, because of his ascension into heaven to be our priest before you, that no one can condemn us. No one's to judge us. No one can separate us from your love. Help us to see, Father, in this wonderful gift that you've given us, uh, that our sins really are serious, that we must truly repent of them. We must change. But we want our change, we want our repentance to be driven uh, not by just willpower, but by love, uh, by gratitude for your mercy. Help us to see that in our high priest Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.